breaking news, my friends. Well, it's already broke, but it's still crazy to me. The Big Ten growing even larger from 14 teams to 16 teams starting in 2024. As yes, indeed, USC, the Trojans, and UCLA, the Bruins, coming to the Big Ten? Money talks and the BS walks. Good morning, Rowdy. This is wild, dude. Yeah, good morning. And it seemed like with the SEC and the Big Ten continuing to grow and grow and the reaches basically from the East Coast for both of those conferences to the Southwest for the SEC and the Midwest for the Big Ten. It's a stranglehold. It was ultimately like the Pac-12 and the Big 12 who seemed to be losing conference members one every couple (laughs) years, just losing more and more. And now you see that the Big 10 officially made a play to get into the West Coast. It's it's nuts, dude. Well, I get it because of one thing and one thing only. Money. They're going to get hand over fist. Dude, this is crazy. USC and UCLA could top... $100 million annually in media rights in the Big Ten. They weren't sniffing anywhere close to that in the Pac-12. USC and UCLA. USC has been with the Pac-12 since 1922 and uh, UCLA since 1928. These are institutions of the Pac-12. And now in two years' time, we're going to be tuning up some West Coast elite losers, Rowdy. I can't wait to show them how to party. Yeah, and how about the fact that now the leading team in the Pac-12 for football is probably Oregon. <laughs> well, just just like from a like a culture and a hey, history standpoint. And all kinds of cool-looking jerseys, I guess, if that's your Because USC bag. and UCLA are like your two biggest names yeah. when it comes from the Pac-12. They are now coming across country, West Coast team, to the Big Ten. But think about the Big Ten and how they were the first conference to go to the East Coast, grab Rutgers and Maryland so they could get into that New York market. Mm -hmm. Obviously being in the Midwest footprint, they already had the Chicago market and now you make the reach over to UCLA and USC grabbing the LA market. Last time I checked, Ebo, New York L.A. and Chicago were the three biggest cities in the country. Yep. Uh, before this is all said and done, Rowdy, uh, maybe even before 2030, it'll just be the Big Ten versus the SEC. As both of these entities, conferences, they bring in more money than any other conferences in the country. Uh, the Big Ten also in the middle of negotiating its new TV deals that are expected to increase exponentially. Um, they're going to bring in some big money, and you'd think, with now the West Coast market, uh, California under your belt, you're going to be just have more money than God. Yeah, sports director Zach Heilprin was in the office yesterday, and I was joking with him. Man, the SEC and the Big Ten sounds like it's ultimately going to be the NFC and the AFC at, at the end because there's not going to be anything else where you're going to be playing in a division. And I go, then they'll play each other, and they'll call it the Super Bowl. But actually, <laughs> it'll be the national championship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of the national championship, or I should say, let's not get too ahead of ourselves, of the Big Ten championship game. Sources now coming out, more breaking news, that, yep, SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles is the potential target to host the Big Ten championship game somewhere in the near future with this agreement. Now, that just doesn't sound right. Like, (laughs) does it even sound right? And USC doesn't sound right. Rutgers and Maryland doesn't sound right. But it, it always the Big Ten championship game had always been in Indianapolis. Like yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It's kind of like the middle ground somewhere. Yeah, you're in the Midwest. But like, now all of a sudden, like what if it? What if it's Ohio State and Wisconsin playing in LA? To, that's, that's it'd be like the stupidest thing ever. It, well, actually, Rod, you said it doesn't sound right. You know what doesn't even sound right? Let's start with the name alone. Does the Big Ten, does that even sound yeah, right? Yeah, at what point do you change the conference to the Big 16? The, the Big Ten has not had 10 teams since before Penn State joined in 1993. So we're going to have 16 teams here starting in 2024, and we're a I mean, whatever. It's called the Big Ten. I know it's branded and whatever, but the name alone just doesn't sound right. And then you go, like you said, Rowdy, Rutgers and Maryland in the Big Ten. That sounds wonky. Then you go and you see UCLA and now USC in the Big Ten. That doesn't sound right. This We truly do live, Rowdy, 
in bizarro world. Well, clearly USC and UCLA is going to help the football market. Yeah. Just just getting that, well, the city of LA in general is going to help. But how about even now in basketball? Because UCLA, that's a it's, that's a blue good. blood powerhouse in basketball. Yeah. USC's been good from time to yeah, time. Yeah, they, they, they ebbs and flows with it. Here's the one thing I don't want to happen with the basketball season. I don't want to have to see the West Coast Badger go out there, and we have to have tip-off at like 10 o'clock at night. Like, I mean, I know you're a night owl more than I am, but Man, do you want could to... You, could you imagine... Do you want to see if it's like 10 o'clock at night to see a tip-off? Could you imagine some of the Midwest pundits? They already talk about how... The Badgers, they kind of put you to sleep playing basketball with how slow it is. Especially with an 8 o'clock tip at the Kohl Center. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now think of a 10 o'clock tip with that slow playing team. I mean, we already bitched about 8 o'clock tip-offs here in Madison, Wisconsin. You go to you go to play US, uh, USC or UCLA or something, it's 10 o'clock at night and they're finally tipping off. You're like, oh my God. And Rowdy, good, thank God that it's not starting next year because I don't know how Badger basketball is going to be next year, but I got to think it's going to be a, a, a tougher of a watch. I don't really know who's going to be. I mean, Chucky Hepburn, uh, I guess it's his team, Stephen Crowell, I guess. But, yeah, could you imagine if it started this year and you're watching this reiteration of the Badger team, you're like, 10, 10, 30 rolls around, you're already, God, this, it's, this is wild. It's absolutely wild. So, yeah, uh, the Big Ten, a shock of the world, adding USC and UCLA. Apparently this has been in talks for a couple months, and it just all of a sudden, boom, done. Did must you, have been on the hush-hush because I don't think word. anybody had heard anything about it until yesterday because we were sitting in our office and all of a sudden... I thought it was a joke. Sports director Zach Halpern goes, oh my God, is this real? Yeah, what, what was your initial reaction? I thought we were, I thought he was joking. What, what did you say? I think you believed it quicker than I did. Well, he was talking. He's like, so-and-so's tweeting this and it looks like another guy is confirming it. Yeah, I turned around and said, Stop. I, that's what I said. Stop. And Rowdy, Rowdy then went down the rabbit hole of two big conferences left in the country. You're going to the SEC and Big Ten coming up here. They should just call it, our guy Rotorate Live on Twitch said, just call it Big, B-I-G. Just call it the Big Conference. I'm fine with that. We're lying to yourselves that there's a yeah. time. Yeah, and I, I kind of like, because remember how when they first went to that big logo? Yeah. But they had the one and the zero in it. Kind of like how they hide the M and the B with the Brewers logo. Uh huh. That makes sense. I, I'm I'm cool with big, but having kind of the old tradition of the Big Ten with hidden in in the logo. But yeah, it's big. not the Big Ten. It hasn't been the Big Ten since Penn State joined. Yeah, ninety three. Big. Just to have it be big. Like <laughs> now, I saw some people um, out of like Notre Dame type media saying. Pretty much confirmed if Notre Dame now enters a conference, it's going to be the Big Ten. Yeah, because I saw then I saw a bunch of people on that train too, saying, "All right, Notre Dame, it's time to get in a conference, and it's going to be the Big Ten. Uh, another one on Twitch here, a guy Victor Fernandez. He says the time zones are going to be bad, really bad. Honestly, it's on disadvantage. He's on the East Coast. Rowdy, imagine if you're a Penn State fan, or if you're like a Maryland or Rutgers, which you know I, I know they exist for those. Penn State, sure. I mean, we've seen a few of them before at tailgates. And then you got to watch a West Coast game, like a basketball game. <laughs> Good luck with the sleep schedule, my man. Like Midwest, it shouldn't be awful just because you're you're in the middle. Yeah, it's, it sucks a little yeah, bit. But yeah, it's it's one way, one hour east, and it's two hours all the way west. But where it's going to be oh. hard for some of these teams is if you're USC and all of a sudden you're playing, say. Uh, a Rutgers or a Penn state in the Eastern time zone at that 11 o'clock kickoff. God, that's going to be a body clock issue. But then on the flip side, how about if it's like a Penn state playing a USC in a night game where it's like a a nine o'clock kickoff. That's going to be a body clock issue for someone out from the East coast. It's just brutal all around. At least we have it. Okay. Here in the middle. You're right. But, the, the the east and the west coast. Yeah, Good west luck. west coast. You never want to play early morning kicks on the east coast, and east no. coast. You never want to play late games on the west coast. No, this is just wild. I mean, are, do you think anyone's going to jump into the Pac-12, or the Pac-12 is now going to be just down two teams? Man, I don't know. Maybe maybe in due time, that Wisconsin football schedule would look a little bit different if it was the same as it is this year. Maybe that New Mexico State-type team would be jumping into the Pac-12. No kidding, man. One of, one of the worst teams in college football. Well, that's the thing. It's like, okay, SEC keeps re- recruiting schools. Then the Big Ten keeps picking off schools. 
the Big 12 and the Pac-12 are kind of starting to disintegrate. Then you have the <laughs> ACC that's trying to hold strong on the East Coast. And then you have like all the little small conferences like the Mountain West, uh, the American. Like, it's, at what point what's going to happen here? At what point does the Big 12 and the Pac-12 just kind of become one? Right. I mean, isn't it kind of just stemming towards like just two big conferences? It is. But I feel like before it would strictly go to Big Ten SEC, it'll be like Big 12 and maybe some uh, Mountain West and Pac-12 teams combined to make a West Coast type division. And then you'd have like your Americans and your ACCs combined to make like an East Coast conference. But yeah, it's... It's definitely changing the landscape of college yeah. football. Yeah. And it, it seems like it started really quick. And, you know, you got NIL in, in function now. NIL is changing the landscape of college sports. And now this realignment of conferences changing college sports. And then I'm reading right here, uh, the financial pressures being felt by the Pac-12 are similar to those being felt in the ACC and beyond as conference revenue projections, which can vary, but not always linear, but can vary. They have the SEC and the Big Ten making nearly double the amount of some other power five leagues yeah. later in this decade. And with the, with these contracts, obviously it's going to help out the schools and it's going to help out the conference with NIL. It's going to help out the players making more money. Mm-hmm. But I think the one, the one base that loses is probably the fans. Oh, it's there's no doubt because of, because of the differences in time zones, because of how it's becoming so much more lopsided with the haves and the have nots. And on top of that, I mean, you you look at how the Big Ten, like, see, I'm torn because I'm like, good for the Big Ten. They're getting into the three yeah, biggest totally. markets. But at the same time, we're losing some of the traditional college football rivalry yeah. matchups, yeah. which. And we like our tradition. You you're know? gaining the money and you're gaining some of the popularity, but you're losing tradition and just kind of the normality of college football and here's what i hate they're gonna force some kind of new bs they're gonna try and force some new quote-unquote tradition on you uh like what was it the freedom trophy that they got with with nebraska with nebraska at least that's somewhat believable yeah there's they love their trophy games there's gonna be some dumbass trophy involving with the badgers in usc or the badgers in ucla how about for the the badgers in usc yeah it's it's the rose bowl the rose trophy it's like it'll be like a big rose or something you're like okay this is kind of wonky but whatever so you're gonna badgers bring back ron dane for their um (laughs) I think Ron Dane's happy about this. He's like, hell yeah. We can bring me out some more. First kickoff against UCLA at Camp Randall. They bring out as an honorary <laughs> captain, Ron Dane. It'll be the, it'll be the, like the Ron Dane trophy or something like that. They're going to, they're going to have some kind of new dumbass trophy and you're going to be like, okay, whatever. Sure. Cool. I know you love your trophies. Uh, it's just wild. There's so many more, you know, much more minutia to all this. Uh, we'll get into it more. Uh, also, it's just, it's, as you said, Rowdy, changing the landscape of college sports and it's messing with tradition. And I guess there's nothing else you can do besides, I guess, like it or you don't have to like it, but you have to accept it. We're, I mean, I saw a lot of people bitching about it that they hate this. OK, you hate it. But what do you, what is hating it going to do? What What is it going to change? You either got to accept it or I guess give up college sports because there's nothing that you being mad about is going to do to change it. I, I like it more than I don't like it, you know. Because I can't wait to see like a UCLA or a USC uh, come down and their fan base come down to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, for a Badger tailgate, and we show these. I, I just um, the 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 move or I'm sorry the show rowdy, and I'm not swearing when I say this is the show's name. Shits Creek, you know what I'm talking about? Yep, you watched it. It'll be like uh, the. Uh, the Roses, the the Rose family, when they get kicked out of their luxurious, uh, rich people, a uh, palatial mansion or whatever, it'll be like them going to the town, S-C-H-I-T-T, Schitt's Creek. Yeah, and it's... That'll be like the fan base. For the Wisconsin Badgers, too, I mean, during 2020 when they shut down the season and were holding tickets kind of in a mysterious type way (laughs) for lack of a better term from fans only to find out that they have like a billion dollar slush fund that billion dollar slush fund is going to be two billion real quick two billion dollars yeah there's just so much interesting uh, stuff surrounding all this it's a surprise to everyone uh the pac-12 i'll read comments from the pac-12 coming up they were caught with their pants down 
Uh, but p- people in the Big Ten, well, think man, about the teams that are, that are jumping ship here lately. Oklahoma and Texas go into the SEC. Yeah, you have UCLA and USC now going to the Big Ten. I did see a funny tweet where so Lincoln Riley, former Oklahoma head coach, yep. went to USC. Obviously, he can recruit the hell out of California and the West Coast. Recruiting. And he, they were saying, you know. With Oklahoma saying that they were going to move to the SEC, maybe this is Lincoln Riley uh, running away from the SEC where he can dominate in the Pac-12 on the West Coast, only for his West Coast USC team to now join the Big Ten, and now he'll have to play against the Ohio States and Michigans and all that competition of the world. Yeah, There's some funny tweets out there, man. Some good stuff. I wanted to bring this up for you, Rowdy, just to get your reaction on it, because I think you're uh, similar with our guy. A Bookhound75 is the uh, our listener on Twitch right here. Uh, good cat. He said, morning, guys. Numerous boneyard defensive plays by the crew, or I'm sorry, numerous boneheaded defensive plays by the crew angered me. It made me pop more beers than normal. Rowdy Brewers did lose 8-7. to seven. The rally falls short in the ninth inning. I thought Luis Urias was going to like hit a dinger. Brewers are going to get it done. Unfortunately, no, they did lose. You were going through it a little bit, too, with our, uh, it was me, you, and a, a listener, Maxwell. Rowdy, boneheaded defensive plays by the crew. Did it, it angered Bookhound. Did it anger you? Well, that's the thing. Those type of games, whether you have a bet on it or not, you're just casually watching the Brewers. Those are the most frustrating games of all. Yeah. I would rather them get absolutely waxed by the Pirates 10 to nothing and be like, oh, they played like crap. Pittsburgh came out, hit the hit the hell out of the ball, and they lost. Not when some of the stuff is self-induced, and then it's like all you need is like a, a base hit here or a base hit there or a, a shutdown inning here and a shutdown inning there, and you're going to take the lead or you're, or you're going to come back and win the game. And you can't get it. You can't ever get it. It's like you're right there. You're, you're right, right there, right but you're just playing like crap. And it's it's lazy. It's sloppy. It, and it just, it's the worst type of Brewer baseball game to watch. Do you think it's one of those things where the Brewers who had not yet lost to the Pirates this year, they come into PNC Park and they're just like, ah, it's the Pirates. We got this one. Nah. Well, I don't get it. Kick your legs up and When relax. you have a guy like Colton Wong who historically has been a plus defender, he's won gold gloves. Obviously, this year he's playing like crap, especially in the field, and it's not like his hitting is that much better. But it's like he makes an awful play. Then all of a sudden he makes a wizardly play where they turn a double play, and then he's back to committing another error. It's like how do you go from making two of those plays where you just look terrible to all of a sudden making a play where you look like a wizard in the field again? It makes no sense. Also, uh, what sucks too rowdy. Adrian Hauser left the game with right elbow tightness. Count said after the game that he's going to have to have a a little uh, what an MRI on it, and he's probably going to go to the IL. So we'll see. Yeah, and from from watching the game, like I, I was telling Another when we were exchanging picture. those uh, uh, messages back and forth about the game, I said I had the game on mute at that point, and it looked like an elbow. Turns out, yeah, it is an elbow, and I wonder if he has been putting up with this or pushing through this for the last month or two, just because if you look at his numbers and we talked about a little bit yesterday, he had out of 14 starts heading into yesterday's game. He had seven solid ones and the majority of them came in April. Now in May and June, we saw that the Milwaukee Brewers staff took a bunch of hits where all of a sudden Peralta was done for multiple months. Woodruff was done for close to a month Ashby's going to be down for a week or two, but they had two or three huge hits to the pitching staff. I wonder if he wasn't feeling it a little bit. And then all of a sudden saying, you know what? We're, we're starting to get healthy here. Actually, my elbow does hurt Yeah, because he hasn't pitched well since April. He hasn't. He has not. Uh, then there's this, our guy on Twitch, x-ray punk says, how's going down? Gives room for one. George Costanza to come back into the rotation. Jason Alexander, who was bumped when Brandon Woodruff came back. And then Jason Alexander was uh, thrown in relief. A lot of stuff with the Milwaukee Brewers. But yeah, first, (laughs) Steve, I mean, we could just talk about it right now. Just last night's game. Yeah, it was the most frustrating type of Brewer game that you can watch. It's a game where they were right there the whole time. And it's like one more base hit here or one shutdown inning here. And they're going to win the game. And they just could never come through like Adrian Hauser 
it was a guy that has pitched well in the first month of the season and he struggled since then. Now he goes on the IL with an elbow injury. Was he trying to push through it the last couple months because the numbers were not great when he saw that the Brewers already had a ton of starting pitching injuries and they couldn't afford to have another guy out and he thought it was something he could work through? I don't know. But all I know is the Pirates hit five home runs last night. And one of the guys that hit the home runs, Michael Perez, he is a guy that has about one full year of major league service between all of the times he has appeared in major league baseball. He's 29 years old. So this isn't like some young prospect and he hits three home runs in the game and goes four for four with five RBIs. Are you kidding me? Ebo, he leaves the game hitting 169. Yeah, leaves the game hitting 169. And he went four for four with limited at bats. He came into the game hitting around 140. It and was this is a guy that's going to, to beat you? It was a career day night for Michael Perez Rowdy. It was his first multi-homer game in his five-year career. He also doubled his season home run total. Going yabo off of the Brewers. Yeah, he entered the game batting 140 with three home runs on the season. He left batting nearly 170 with six home runs. That guy beats you. Then you give up two other home runs. But, Ebo, if you watched where those pitches were, really the Milwaukee Brewers actually looked decent pitching-wise besides those five at-bats. And that's the thing. Every single one of those, I think, besides one, was either a hanging breaking ball that was center cut or it was a fastball right down the middle. The Pirates took advantage of the awful pitches in those five at-bats. Like, that's really all they did. Here's Pittsburgh's statistics. 0 for 2 hitting with runners in scoring position. They only left four guys on base the entire game. Yeah. They literally feast or famine, and they feasted off the home runs. Now, here's the Brewers. They were putting guys on every single inning. It felt like they had at least one or two guys on and were having uh, trouble scoring them. They finished four for 16 hitting with runners in scoring position, left eight guys on. But that four for 16 was two for 12 until that ninth inning where they obviously had that little bit of a rally, scored a couple runs. But yeah, that's just. 16 opportunities to hit with runners in scoring position to Pittsburgh's two. And you lost the game because you couldn't get a shutdown inning. You made mistakes. And then you have guys like Colton Wong. that are supposed to be good in the field that have been brutal this entire season, but you'll look so good on one play where he turned a double play and then so bad on a couple other plays. That's, those are the most frustrating type Brewer games to watch because it's a game that if you did a few things right, you would have won. Yeah. Pittsburgh used up their best relievers in that game. Um, they threw Bednar, everything in the kitchen sink at Bednar, him. the guy that uh, ended up getting hit hard yeah, and then they had yeah. to bring in uh, Santos at the end. He's He's been really good. They brought in and used up their three, four best relievers out of the pen, but here's the deal. He hadn't even pitched in three days because he had a sore back and he looked rusty. <laughs> they got a good name for this car. Rusty. Rowdy. And that was the first loss for the like, Brewers against the Pirates this season. Lo- I would rather watch the Brewers lose 10 to nothing where Pittsburgh just dominates them and they do absolutely nothing. So you get your hopes up in the ninth and fall short. these frustrating type games where it's like, do one thing right and you win. Call them a bum. Call them bums. Well, I mean, the guys that pitched, a lot of bums out there. Call them bums. Hauser's looked bad again. Suter, he's been on my S list for a while. Come a bum. You got Alexander coming out of the bullpen. He might be back to starting with uh, Hauser. He's he's much better as a starter. Gustave even gave up a home run. Call him a bum. Call Suter a bum, Rowdy. I've thought Suter was a bum for the last two, three years. Me and Fuller went back and forth on that one. His (laughs) shtick is old. He throws a Reagan era fastball. Reagan era fastball. <laughs> Brewers back at it against the Pirates tonight. 6.05. Might be a little rain. That's the one thing. Get a roof, you pours. Ebo, get a roof, you pours. Thankfully, July is over. The Milwaukee Brewers. No, June's over. Already. Or sorry, June is over. We are officially in July. Yeah, so when you look at the Milwaukee Brewers here, Ebo. Get a roof, Pittsburgh. 
Hopefully it doesn't rain this weekend for your sake and just for anyone that wants to watch Brewers baseball. And for everyone's sake. sake. But yeah, yeah, thankfully June is over for the Milwaukee Brewers. It was by far their toughest month when you look at one going into the season and then two currently in the season playing teams with an above 500 record and or teams that were expected to be playoff or World Series contenders. Yeah. So now when you went right through those months, April they had eight, just eight games against teams that were 500 or better or playoff contenders. They ended up finishing that month, if you remember, 15 and 7. 15 and 7 was the third best month that the Brewers had ever had for a month of April to start the season as a franchise. They finished those eight games against teams, like I said, 500 or better, mm-hmm. 4 and 4. Mm. Then they turned the calendar to May. They had 13 games against those uh, better teams. They finished the month 17 and 12. So pretty solid winning month. They finished, they finished those 13 games with a record of seven and six. Mm. So they're playing about 500 mm. baseball so far for the first two months against teams that are 500 or better. Well, then it was the month of June and June. Ooh. They had 19 games against teams 500 or better that were playoff contenders. 19. It was by far out of all of the months, the Ah. most stacked month with the toughest schedule. And then you parlay that with the fact that injuries started to pile up and they weren't playing very good baseball. Mm. They had the eight game losing streak. They lost. What was it? uh, 11 out of their first 14 games in, in June. They ended up finishing the month with that loss last night, 12 and 15. Hey, but in those 19 games against teams better than 500, 8 and 11. So they've relatively been around 500 when it comes to playing these teams that are 500 or better. If you go right through it, I mean, they're 19 and 21 against teams with a, a record of 500 or better that are playoff contenders. Yeah, yeah. So about 500. But then when you look at the damage that they've done in the central, because we know that the central is not a good division. We know that there's three bottom feeders. They're seven and two against Cincinnati. So that means they still have 10 more games left against the Reds. Yep. Yep. 19. Six and one against the Pirates. Now that one was last night. Unfortunately, we bet on them, but they have 12 dude. more games against the pirates five and five against the Cubs, nine more games against the Cubs and six and six against the pirates or sorry against the Cardinals. And obviously the Cardinals are the team that they are competing with in the central. And at this point they have seven more games left with the Cardinals, but moving forward, when you look at the schedule and how tough these months are. The month of July, lots of days off. Obviously, Ebo, you have the all-star break yeah. and just a lot of days off in general yeah. in July. <laughs> but <laughs> Oops. only 11 <laughs> games against teams that are 500 or playoff contenders. Only 11? Only 11 in the hey, month of July with a lot of days off. So that, in theory, should be relatively an easier, the easiest month moving forward. Then you turn the page to August. They have just 12 games against teams that are 500 or better. And then in September and then the first week of October to round out the season, 12 games Mm. against Mm. teams 500 or better. So it only gets easier from here. I would, I would argue that June and May were one, two for toughest and especially, you know, after that July, well, I guess they moved the trade deadline to early August yeah, now, yeah. but that early August deadline, when you play these teams like the Cubs, when you play the teams like the Reds and the Pirates, these are teams that are going to be selling at that deadline. Totally. So they're going to be potentially even worse post early August. And you're clearly you're playing, playing in division. Yeah. You're going to be playing them a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, this does bode well for Milwaukee and the fact that they're getting healthier. Sounds like Ashby might be available this week, this weekend, if not next week. Now, I know Adrian Hauser goes back on with an elbow, but at this point, it's probably Jason Alexander and Chichi Gonzalez filling back in. Summer of George. I mean, Lucas. Colton Wong has just recently made it back. Mike Brasso has just recently made it back. Gustave and Gott have come back in the last week. They're starting to get healthy. Woody's throwing a big dong around. Yeah, the the only guy that you're really waiting on that's a major player on this team outside of Hauser where it's kind of 
Yeah, question mark, yeah, we'll like see. what's going on? It's Freddie Peralta, and they're hoping to get him back. There has been no official timetable, but when they started that and said significant shoulder strain, I figured at least down two months, so that puts yeah. you into the month of August. I think overall, th- this is the time for the Milwaukee Brewers to start putting some ground between Strike them and the Cardinals. The iron is they hot, have Rowdy. to. Yeah, have to. NBA free agency. A lot of comings and goings. How about this all for news of the weird? We'll get to the Bucks momentarily. Uh, but June 30th, yesterday, uh, at 5 o'clock, free agency started. You uh, thought I was for real. For <laughs> you se- looked at me. For a second there, I did. In 2019, on June 30th, Kevin Durant proclaimed and Kyrie Irving that they were signing with the Brooklyn Nets. Flash forward to 2022, on the same day, on this day in history, June 30th, Kevin Durant requests a trade from the Brooklyn Nets right after Kyrie Irving opts in. How about that? What did the Brooklyn Nets get from this big three that they had, Rowdy? A loss to the Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, I saw a lot of people tweeting and kind of like joking on Twitter talking about how the the Nets went all in with this dream team (laughs) with (laughs) Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and then acquiring Ben Simmons only to make it to the Eastern Conference or to the Eastern, uh, what was it, semifinals no. or whatever they said? Like that was the farthest to lose the that Bucks. that core had taken them, mm-hmm. and then and then they yeah they lost to the Bucks. Hilarious because uh, Kevin Durant's shoes were about one size too long. Yep, those damn genetics making them too tall. Unbelievable. Yep. So there you go. <laughs> but imagine that you go all in, you acquire two what some people would consider superstars. And then you even add a, a Ben Simmons Ugh. and the farthest you got with that core was the Eastern conference semifinals. <laughs> and wow. It's just crazy on the same day, June 30th, 2019, they say, we're coming to Brooklyn. We're bringing it with us a championship. And on June 30th of 2022, KD says, I want out. And he wants to go to, I was reading Miami or Phoenix. Well, Phoenix just gave, a booker just is a he not just such a country. turd? Hey, he's a, I'm gonna he's go, a chaser. I'm gonna go. F- no, no, he starts out as I'm drafted by the Supersonics, which then turns into OKC. Mm-hmm. OKC does such a good do- good job drafting. At one point, they have Kevin Durant, they have Russell Westbrook, and James Harden is their fifth man. Insane. Three guys that you would consider NBA superstars at one point of their career. They couldn't man. win. They made it to the NBA Finals. What was it? Once? Yeah, and they got beat. Couldn't do it. Was it by was it by dirt? No. Who was it? Who did they lose to? Well, regardless, remember. doesn't matter. They couldn't get it done. No. And then he moves on to Golden State, wins with Curry, Clay, Draymond Green, and company that have proven that they won it before and after Kevin Durant. Then he moves on, puffs his little chest out, his indented chest, and says, I'm going to Brooklyn, we're going to New York, we're going to build another team, and I'm going to be the face of it. And then they come up short. Now he's like, oh, I want to join Phoenix, a team that's already one of the better teams in the West. Now they did have a poor postseason, yep. but one healthy, one of the better teams in the West. Or the Heat, one of the better teams in the East. You have... One Bobby Portis coming back. He got he got paid in full. Man. Well, Bobby. actually, the Brewers, or the Brewers, the Bucks got a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he got big money for him. Yeah. 49, 49 mil. million. But it, on the open market, he probably actually would have commanded a little bit more because I think that comes out to just over 12 million a year. So Bobby but, loves Milwaukee. Yeah, he could have he could have easily gotten mid to upper teens. And I don't know how crazy I'm about this. I mean, whatever. Wesley Matthews, you know, Wisconsin guy. It is what it One is. One year deal. It's a veteran that's yeah. a smart player that'll be a guy to knock down shots. Javon Carter, a two year deal. Is Backup what it is. Guard. And then uh, they got Joe Ingles, a free agent forward out of the Utah Yaz. I actually don't mind this. Thirty four years old. They don't have a ton of money to go get players. If you're going to bring in a big name, it's going to be that two for one type trade where you have like George. Hill and Allen and try and upgrade slightly for a one better player. You don't have a ton of money because we already know that they're pushing the limits of the salary cap and the luxury tax. But I think Joe Ingles, it's it's like a sneaky. All right. Pick like, think about it. I like it. He's a mid thirties guy, but I like it. He's he's a guy that like he is the definition definition of like old man game at the rack. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's a guy that does nothing flashy, but he makes the right passes. He can knock down shots. Good teammate. So, 
Yeah, um, it's nothing great, but it's it's not a guy that's going to lose you a game. Who broke the news on Joe Ingles actually was Renee Ingles, his wife. She tweeted out, breaking news, sources very close to free agent Joe Ingles can confirm that he's agreed to a one-year deal with the Milwaukee Bucks. The CEO of the house, Renee Ingles, is thrilled for Joe and their family. Joe himself is said to be very bucking happy. So there you go. See what else the Bucks can do. Let's go to line one. Well, now they don't have much to do. Nah, if yeah, they yeah. want to really do anything. Well, wasn't it Grayson Allen and, and George Hill were linked to maybe a, they're going to move them? That was, that was the two-for-one trade they were hoping, but you have to find a dance partner to do it. Yeah. And you don't really have a ton of money for any other real signee. Yeah. And we have UFC 276, and we always, with the big events, got to talk to the biggest cat I know when I'm covering these events, our guy Dan, Half the Battle Podcast, as well as on Twitter at Best Fight Picks. Dan, good morning, my man. What's going on, brother? Chilling, guys. I mean, this truly is the best event of the year, so I'm really excited to talk uh, fights with you guys this weekend. How y'all doing? We're, I'm doing great, Rowdy. How are you doing today, brother? I'm living the dream. I, I can't wait for some of these matchups. And I know Adesanya, he's the huge name with the belt that's the main event, but I love the co-main. I, I can't wait to see Volkanovski and Holloway. That's my fight of the night. Oh, man. I mean, it's not often you see a trilogy when one guy is up to nothing in terms of the fights. But, like, the last one was so close, so competitive. A lot of people thought Max might have won, so they got to run it back a third time. Oh, yeah, no doubt, Dan. We're excited about this one. We're going to dive into the uh, made headliner. But first, let me ask you, and we were talking a little off air. Uh, first, per- a personal question. Did I see you taking your pops to a fight uh, a week or so ago? Did I see that on Twitter correctly? Oh, you saw that, man. You know, uh, PFL, they're, uh, for those that don't know, they're basically like, you know, there's the UFC and then there's the PFL. PFL are the ones with the million-dollar tournament. So they've been doing a three-week residency in Atlanta, and I've been covering the, the events. Like, they've been cool enough to, you know, get me in all the shows, and they let me interview the fighters on my podcast after battle. So I, I asked them on Father's Day weekend, like, would it be cool if uh, if my dad came through and, they were not only cool enough to let him in, but they like escorted us to like cage side seats and awesome. PFL. I cannot say enough good things about them. It was pretty Great amazing. Father's Day. Well, it's like a lot of those smaller organizations like PFL, like the Bellators, they're starting to get more competitive with the UFC. They're not to the UFC level, but they're starting to get some names, whether that be from the international wrestling scene, whether that be some old UFC, but they're bigger names. And it's kind of cool to see that, it's actually a product that people want to see now or that they're even putting on TV. That's cool. I mean, what's so cool about PFL and these other leagues you're talking about is that there used to be a time when the UFC was the be-all, end-all. And don't get me wrong, the UFC is far and beyond the number one. There's no doubt about that. But it used to be a thing where fighters would get released from the UFC. They'd get cut. They wouldn't get re-signed. And then their dream their dream is completely crushed. But now fighters have an opportunity to make money outside the UFC. So it's truly a beautiful thing. And I mean, with this million dollar tournament that PFL is doing, uh, a bunch of guys that couldn't cut it in the UFC, now they got something to look forward to. So it's really awesome. It's just crazy that I remember growing up being like in junior high, watching Bubba Jenkins wrestle for Penn State. And now all of a sudden he's fighting in PFL for a million dollars. And he was kind of those guys that was always seen as really good, but never ever made it over to the UFC. Right. You know, I actually saw him fight last week uh, in Atlanta, too. You know, he's he's one of those guys. But also, some bigger names, too, man. I mean, last week we had Anthony Pettis, who was a star in the UFC. This week we got Rory McDonald. Uh, so, like, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. Like, guys that would probably be, you know, top 20 in the UFC, they can be a champion in PFL. That's cool, man. Hey, Dan, looking at, uh, and, and it's cool for you bringing the pops there. It looked like an awesome Father's Day. That's awesome on you. Uh, but, Dan, for UFC 276, uh, Rowdy had sent me a nice little press conference uh, video yesterday. Dude, is Sean Strickland, like, one of the most electrifying press conference dudes out there right now? Because what I was dying laughing listening uh, to him just attack anyone and everyone at that presser. Dude, that was his first ever press conference, and I sincerely hope it's not his last. I mean, <laughs> that guy is an absolute riot, and 
it's one of those things where his fighting style, now I respect the heck out of it, man, because he's actually a very, very smart fighter. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that by listening to him talk, <laughs> but if you watch, but if you watch him, he's not, he doesn't fight like a meathead or anything like that. He fights behind his jab. He's super disciplined out there. So man, how, how much do you guys hope that he wins this weekend so we can see him versus Izzy Adesanya? And honestly, they should just go ahead and scrap the two fights and make them fight right. Izzy anyway. Well, that's the thing, Dan. It's like, okay, there hasn't been – we know that in combat sports, if you can talk trash and get all the other guys' skin, it goes a long way in promoting the fights. And some of your best fighters or most popular fighters in the history of combat sports have been really good at being able to talk crap and get under people's skin. Look at Muhammad Ali. Look at Conor McGregor. There really hasn't been. I know there's been some rivalries where there's been bad blood and it's just two guys that don't like each other going back and forth. But Strickland with this presser is like the closest thing we've had since like prime McGregor. Dude, it was truly something. And, you know, he's a guy that used to keep his mouth shut. I think he was kind of worried that he might say the wrong thing or this and that. But now you know, he kind of said, yeah, he kind of said F it. He removed the sensor. And now this version of Strickland, you know, you're not always going to agree with everything he says, <laughs> but you're going to be, enter- you're going to be entertained. Don't worry, don't I, just watch could, any I just could him. not believe that he got under Israel Adesanya's skin the way he did. Cause you could, he was noticeably upset on Asanya. That was like, he was pissed. Yeah, no doubt about it, man. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. But I think one of the backstories, too, is the guy that Sean Strickland is fighting actually knocked out Adesanya in kickboxing. So Sean Strickland kept bringing that up, and there was nothing Izzy could say about it, you know? So, Dan, speaking of Izzy, uh, the main fight here, what are you thinking? Um, I see uh, Adesanya's minus 380, a heavy favorite. What are we thinking in this fight? Yeah, I mean, listen, Izzy should win. He's just got too much style for Jared Cannonier. He's too long. He switches stances, too much variety. It's just one of those things where with these long reigning champions, at some point there comes a time where maybe they, they lose a little bit of focus. Maybe they do slip on that banana peel. Jared Cannonier is no slouch, man. He's a very hard hitter. He's a guy who's knocked people out at heavyweight light heavyweight and now at middleweight he's in, he's in his optimal shape he's truly earned his title shot so we'll see if he rises to the occasion but obviously before the fact i gotta go with izzy adesanya as long as he's on his game yeah it's pretty crazy if you go back and look at like the ultimate highlights for jerry cannonier it's crazy that you're seeing knockouts from when he was a little heftier to now being super cut and and he's always been a guy that's got a lot of power in his hands. He might not have many paths to victory, but he always will have a path when if he connects with a solid right hand. But not only that, like we talked about how he doesn't have too many paths, but same thing for Izzy, because, I mean, you're not going to see Izzy come out here and shoot takedowns. You're not going to see too much of a clinch game from Izzy. Izzy likes to strike. Jared Cannonier likes to strike. So we got 25 minutes to see if someone hits the deck. Uh, Dan from uh, Half the Battle, check out his podcast joining uh, with us as well as check out his Twitter account, Best Fight Picks. Dan, speaking of Best Fight Picks, what's some Best Fight Picks that you uh, see lower level on this or lower down on the card, Dan? Well, I made two bets for this weekend, guys. You know, the first one I made was Sean O'Malley uh, against Pedro Munoz. I bet him at actually minus 250. He's currently minus 300, so, you know, I beat the line by like 50 cents. So I understand if people are hesitant to to play him straight, but he'd make a good parlay piece if you don't want to play him straight like I did. Um, you know, Pedro Munoz, his opponent, I got a lot of respect for. He's been around the game a long time. He's a tough, durable guy, but he's there to be hit. I just don't think you can get hit six times per minute and beat Sean O'Malley in a fight. I think there's a tailor-made matchup for Sean O'Malley to go out there and just show out, and I think that's exactly what he's going to do. So that's my first pick, and my second pick, is the young Ian Gary. I got him at minus 155. He's currently minus 185. You can still play him straight, but if you're feeling frisky, parlay him with Sean O'Malley. Uh, You know, a lot of people are talking a lot of smack about Ian Gary because 
the kid's cocky. The kid's, uh, you know, he believes in himself. He, he's got a personality, but I don't care about any of that. All I care about is can this guy fight? And he can absolutely fight. I mean, on his regional scene, he's been the full five-round distance. This guy's gotten hit and come back no problem. He's got toughness. He's got grit. But more importantly, he's got the skills I need. And his opponent, Gabe Green, gets hit entirely too much for my liking. So I think there's a great matchup for Ian Gary, and uh, I took him straight here. Yeah, I can't I can't go against you with the Gary pick. But to play devil's advocate for the Sean O'Malley, are you just a little bit nervous? Because we saw O'Malley fight uh, Chito Vera. And Chito Vera, he's obviously a tough guy. That guy's not going to quit. Plus, he's pretty good at every single area of uh, combat sports. Do you think, though, because we've seen Sean O'Malley quit when he gets tested, Munoz has a chin. And he's got heavy hands. Can he eat enough Sean O'Malley <laughs> shots and keep coming forward to where maybe he breaks O'Malley? That's my devil's advocate for you. I mean, listen, man, the Cheeto Vera fight really plays no, has no weight in my mind. Reason being, Cheeto Vera is the number five guy on planet Earth. Cheeto Vera is a guy who's about to fight Dominic Cruz, who's probably one or two fights away from a title shot. Like, Cheeto Vera's on the up and up. Like, And not to mention, Cheeto Vera has the most finishes in UFC bantamweight history. So, to me, I really I really don't even care that, that Cheeto Vera beat him. And that was like three years ago, not to mention. Uh, uh, Pedro Munoz is a guy on the downside of his career. Cheeto, uh, uh, Pedro Munoz is not working his way up towards a title shot. You know, Pedro Munoz is a guy who is eating all these shots, but now these last few performances have been uninspiring. You're not seeing the same fire he once had. And I think the UFC kind of sees this as a spot where you're catching Pedro at the perfect time where you could be the first guy to finally put him down. Uh, Dan, I'm looking at Sean O'Malley. We got a, you know, the crazy hair, uh, bright pink. If you were to grow your hair out or maybe your beard, would you dye it a, a pink and a purple that Sean O'Malley rocks? I like how you said maybe your beard. <laughs> no, but uh, um, no. <laughs> no, the only the only thing I'd wear that's purple besides my jujitsu belt is maybe a fresh pair of Nikes, man. You know, I'm not into the dyeing your hair, but listen, man, you're saying the uh, ultimate fashion championship is the ultimate fighting championship in the kitchen hey, fight, and that's all that matters. There you go, baby. Yeah. And one the other matchup that I want to talk about, just because you we mentioned it. When we first brought you on, it's Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway. It's a trilogy, but Volkanovsky has won two fights. Now, in my opinion, man, what was that? Almost two years ago now when they fought last, I thought Holloway actually won the second fight. Yeah. I mean, listen, that second fight, give credit to Max Holloway for making the kind of adjustments that he did, because oftentimes you see with these long reigning champions, once they lose their belt, they don't regain their belt. So for Max Holloway to be as hungry as he was, make the adjustments he made, and then go back out there the very next fight against Calvin Cater and set a record for significant strikes landed, I mean, just speaks volumes to the kind of competitor that he is. But on the other side of things, you've got a guy in Alexander Volkanovsky who's not resting on his laurels, who's not content to just be the champ. I mean, this guy is going out there his last two fights. I mean, the, the fight against Ortega, not only did he dominate Ortega, but when he had to face adversity, the kind of submission attempts he faced, the kind of things that put other men to sleep, the kind of things that made other men tap out, Alexander Volkanovsky found a way to escape and then dominate the fight. And then against the Korean zombie, you know, he was a minus 800 favorite. And oftentimes when people are that big of a favorite, they like to play it safe. You know, there's so much pressure on their shoulders. Alex Volkanovsky didn't play it safe at all. He, he put it on the zombie. He stopped the zombie, which is something that, that one doesn't simply do. So I think we're dealing with two guys um, that are just full of fire, that have a lot of intensity, but I bet Volk both times. I'm picking him this time. I need the line to come down a little bit more. Reason being is this, guys. Look, they've fought for 10 rounds, and there's been six judges that have judged the fight. Five of the six judges concluded that the score was 3-2 at the end of the fight. One of the judges concluded 5 nothing. you know, good on him, but the, other, but the other five concluded that it was 3-2. If it's truly going to be 3-2 again, then it might be a dogger pass situation and you have an argument for Max. However, I've, I've 
made this example many times on the show with you guys before how no two fights, let alone no three fights, are created equally. The most recent example is Joanna versus Wiley. The first time they fought was this five-round war. The second time they fought was an absolute destruction by Wiley. And I can name a lot of examples like that. Shogun versus Machida. Cowboy versus Pettis. Cowboy versus Benson. I mean, there's sometimes it's a finish, sometimes it's a five-round war. So these last two times have been five-round wars. Don't write off the possibility of someone coming out here and putting a stamp on things. And I think that someone is going to be Alexander Volkanovsky. One quick comment, Dan. Did you see, by the way, that Pettis got twistered the other weekend? That's crazy. Yeah, of course. It was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was front row. <laughs> of course you were. Of course and you then were. the other part with the Volkanovski and, and Holloway, Holloway's going to bring the volume. We know that. He's got in, incredible volume. But, man, man I, I don't man, know man. who I want to win. I kind of want to see Max win. I kind of want to see Alex win. I kind of want to see Volkanovski fight Triple C. I want to get him out of retirement. <laughs> Yeah, I think that might be a big, a, a bit of a wish, but as far as the volume is concerned, I mean, you're 100% correct. Max Holloway does have incredible volume and his length and all that. But and he eats shots, special. too. Oh, does he eat shots, you know? And there's something incredible about this guy Volkanovski because you, you see a short, compact guy, and you think about the power, you think about the strength, which he obviously possesses, but this guy's got the volume, too. And he's got the most elite fainting game I've ever seen in MMA. For those that don't know, a faint is kind of almost like a fake, like a pump fake. But for fighting terms, you kind of draw the attack out of your opponent and you get them guessing what you're about to do. And Volkanovski is the best at getting his opponents completely mesmerized and guessing and not knowing what's coming the entire time. So if there's someone that can match the output of Holloway is Volkanovski, but you can't sit here and expect the same output that you saw him give versus Cater because that just won't fly against Volkanovski. That said, I think these two are going to be throwing for however long this fight lasts, and you're going to see another instant classic. Hey, Dan, we absolutely love the coverage you got for uh, UFC 276 coming up here. Best fight picks on Twitter, Half the Battle podcast, and I don't want you eating any shots, but I do want you taking some shots, i.e. celebratory shots, this weekend for uh, 4th of July. All right, my brother? Likewise, guys, don't drink and drive. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Look forward to speaking with you all soon, and uh, take care, y'all. We love you, Dan. Have a good weekend, brother. There he is. Our guy, Dan. He's good stuff.